0: I'd like to reflect a little this morning on one of the fundamental areas of our experience that the teachings invite us to consider, and uh, I hope this isn't a surprise to you, um, I'm aware that the time for the retreat was only post sorry, for the talk was only posted rather late, and uh, so in case you thought you were coming into a silent sitting, um, it won't be. Uh, but hopefully you saw the notice. Hopefully that's why you're here. And just uh, in beginning to take a moment just to in a way establish an intention for presence, for sensitivity, to be really giving one's attention to a, to a talk, to, or to receiving teaching. It's helpful to have the attention in the body not just in the the listening or the contemplating faculty but also useful sometimes to be aware that this isn't meditation per se although there's a meditative element that one can actually turn one's full attention to the topic one is hearing about. That full attention being a, an attention in the body, but also in the in the sense of interest to receive, to hear. So, not listening from a the long distance away of one's deep inner practice, which it sometimes can feel like, but nor somehow needing to come out of our practice or leave that sense of uh, bodily. Awareness that is such a helpful ground, and so with that, the the topic I'd like to speak about is one perhaps familiar to most, if not all of you. I imagine rather familiar as a topic at least, um, and yet not necessarily something we may have considered deeply. The in the in the Buddha's teaching of the four foundations of mindfulness or of establishing wakefulness, I think. For myself, I prefer the word wakefulness these days because mindfulness has come to mean something else and many people's uh, understanding, which is fine, but uh, it's also good to distinguish. that There are contemplative elements to what we call sati, mindfulness, wakefulness. And so contemplating experience includes the contemplation of what the Buddha called Vedana, the second foundation following on from body, Kaya, which I think Suvacho was going to speak about yesterday and I assume he did but I wasn't here and it's okay if he didn't but uh, I'm intending to follow on from that a little. And at the same time the the topic really exists in its own uh, in its own right really to Look at this topic is to consider something that is fundamental to the process of how we get caught in the experience and the entanglement of of craving of grasping of suffering and of distress and the deeper senses of that word in the way that experience arises for us in our internal experience there is an element that is central to understanding the mechanism, and it's this element of Vedana, which is translated commonly as feeling, and it's actually a remarkably unhelpful translation, because feeling to most of us means emotion, and it's not emotion, or it means things we feel, like sort of warmth and coolness and hardness, you know, so like sensory impingement, we call those feelings as well, and that's not it either. Emotion is actually the realm of the third foundation um, or involved with that much more. And and se- sort of physical sensations are part of the field of body. Feeling or Vedana, which are often translated as feeling, and I was just looking at two or three translations just now, and they all use that same translation. Um, and there are scholars and academics and practitioners who... I'm sure they know much more about Pali than I do, so I don't want to uh, set myself up as knowing more than them. I certainly don't. But the particular word that's used, sometimes one has to listen to the effect it has. Because Vedana is a very specific component of every experience. In a sense, it's an experience by itself, but it's a particular component of every experience. And it is that Element of the experience which we subjectively experience and it's subjective we experience it as pleasurable desire and and enjoyable or unpleasant not enjoyable and um, this particular aspect of experience is key to understanding the mechanisms that bind the heart and mind and equally to freeing the heart and mind and in the the teaching of Paticca samuppada the dependent origination of of dukkha the the mechanism whereby entanglement and suffering is created and equally whereby disentanglement and freedom liberation is revealed it has a key it's a key part of that and the way the buddha speaks about it we see that there's this contact we have with experience we have sensory equipment we have five physical senses and we have a mind which is understood also as a sensory um receptor that receives images and concepts they kind of come into the mind In the same way sounds come into the air and um temperature and pressure makes has contact with the the, the body the way chemicals touch the tongue and the nose and we smell and we taste and the way vibrations touch the eardrum and we hear sounds and the way electromagnetic radiation comes into the eye, light we call it, and we experience seeing. So all these senses, all of that is really part of awareness of body, knowing all of those five physical senses. And then each of those contacts, each of those moments in which the sense door meets a sense impression, there's a quality of pleasantness or not pleasantness, or we experience an absence of such quality. And the Buddha included this as one of the three ways Vedana is experienced. as pleasant, as unpleasant, or as neither pleasant or unpleasant. And With that, one perhaps can see that in every moment it's got to be one of these three. It's either this one, that one, or it's neither of them. And that neither of them is sometimes translated as neutral. But that's maybe not such a helpful translation again. And the literal translation is neither this one nor that one. I'll come back to that perhaps in a moment. And so what we notice is there's contact with experience, sense door impinged on by sense object. I mean, this can sound a little bit technical, but it's it's what's happening every moment. We're sitting here, sound comes in. The sound is pleasurable to us. We kind of like the tone. And it's happening. Maybe these words are unpleasant. There's too much technicality in it, or there's just too many of them, or... That accent, it's kind of like, where does that come from? And we kind of, uh, um, something goes on for us. And then there's a pause. It's maybe, oh, oh, that feels a bit better. A few less words, yeah. That's more like the silence I came here for. Oh, it's oh, got a pleasant quality, perhaps. For someone else, of course, it might be, that was pleasant. Oh, that sounds interesting. Oh, yeah, I like that. Oh, nice Kiwi accent, yes. You know, and then it's all gone silent. And suddenly we can feel our knee hurts. And there's something unpleasant. So what happens is this experience of Vedana continuous or consistently and reliably arises with each moment's experience, with every experience. And if we're not conscious of it, if we're not aware of it, it leads to a very... Um, recognizable unconscious reaction which is we like and therefore we want more of and we crave we grasp after the pleasant this isn't news to you I'm sure and we don't like and therefore we resist or we push away, or we struggle with the unpleasant and if it's neither pleasant or unpleasant we tend to just ignore it We're like, it's not doing anything for me It's not doing anything to me. So why should I bother paying attention to that? It's quite simple. That's our conditioned um, pattern, our tendency to do, to respond. And the best phrase I've ever heard or description or the word translation that's there, sometimes we translate it as feeling tone. That's the one I've used for many years. But teaching with a friend in America uh, a year or two ago, um, a kinchinou, um, he, he used the phrase hedonic tone and it's just like a now, he's very precise with his mind boom that's it exactly in two words hedonic tone you, we, if you know what the word hedonic means of course that helps but hedonism we know is that whole sort of pursuit of pleasure hedonic tone is tonality of pleasurability that's what it is and that's exactly what this is about and it's useful to notice that it's a spectrum it's not a Sort of pleasant over here, unpleasant over there. There's actually gradations of these experiences. And there's a a place sort of in the middle where we don't register anything very much at all of either of them. And that we could call the neither this nor that. And this hedonic tonality conditions us profoundly if we don't understand it well, if we're not present for when it arises, and able to recognize it for what it is. When the Buddha speaks about it, he he, he talks about, um, in in, in the Satipatthana Sutta, he talks about being aware of, being mindful of, we could say, being awake to, is how I would say it, perhaps being awake to that element. Therefore, acknowledging it, recognizing it, seeing it for what it is in every experience. (laughs) And the Buddha, and it sometimes might seem a little, sort of, uh, not immediately obvious when, if one looks at the languages, he talks about worldly and unworldly, and you kind of think, oh, what is unworldly? What, 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 what kind of experience is being pointed? Worldly is the sensory experience, the contact with what we call the world. So sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts and images, interestingly, arise through contact with sense objects that are essentially what create the sense of the world for us. Images and thoughts likewise. And that's worldly. Um, That's worldly um, experiences and worldly vedana, we can say. But there is also a vedana quality, a pleasant unpleasant quality that comes not from the worldly experience. And this is actually a very interesting thing to have one's attention brought to, unworldly. And we're not talking about something from some sci-fi movie here, you know, it's not like some alien sort of Vedana experience. Unworldly is that which is not of the world of sense contact. And actually it's the the quality of pleasurability or otherwise that we experience in relationship to the quality of the heart and the mind, the state and the condition of our heart-mind and it's the qualities arising within it have in themselves a pleasant, and unpleasant, or a neither, pleasant or unpleasant. It's a bit of a mouthful. You can see why they shortened it to neutral if you're having to say it all the time. Have neither of those. Um, and so it's actually something that arises from meditative or inner experience, but is most specifically it's connected with the quality of the heart and mind. The condition of the and the qualities arising in the heart and mind, which aren't specifically arising in relationship to worldly phenomena, but more actually to do with the process of inner development. And so, this is something that we are invited to notice, to be aware of. And interestingly, the Buddha speaks about pleasurable, unworldly experience—those enjoyable tones we experience internally as the heart and mind settle, as the as the as the chitta, as the heart mind comes into contact or emerges and arises with wholesome qualities, infusing it, such as loving kindness or with a, with a sense of um, The pleasurableness of this, the Buddha speaks of as blameless. Not that one's to blame for the others, but more that this is something we actually are invited to develop and even not so much to pursue but to cultivate because it's these qualities that we start to contact that allow us to find a more natural and ultimately deeper settling of the heart and mind as we find our attention is naturally drawn towards an inner condition of essentially well-being that is pleasurable to us, founded on the cultivation and the establishment of wholesome inner qualities, not dependent upon outer conditions and circumstances in the same way. So so the tonality has, has very important... Significance for us, this hedonic tonality, pleasant. Un- One, it's how we get entangled, if we're not aware of it. But used skillfully and understood skillfully, it's also part of what allows the attention to sustain and deepen into the experience and the development of samatha, of calm, focus, unification, or we could say concentration, if we understand that word right, correctly. And so worthy of giving some attention to, Definitely. I'm just going to move the clock so I can actually see what time it is. We could be here longer than I had in mind. So does that make sense so far? There's quite a bit of, in a way, information. But again, I'm, suggest- I'm suspecting most of you have a good amount of this already that you'll have encountered. And here it's more about kind of refining, contextualizing, and also... Maybe deepening in that understanding. So in terms of the the what it is, vedana, hedonic tone, the spectrum or degree of pleasant, not pleasant, or something that doesn't seem to be either. And we can notice in relationship to, as I said, physical senses or the mental sense. So a thought can be pleasant in and of itself or unpleasant, just as a physical sensation can be. And it's really useful to recognize that we don't get to choose whether an experience registers as pleasant or as unpleasant or neutral. We have no influence or control upon that at all. And so for one person, a particular sound might sound lovely. And for someone else, it might be absolutely painful to hear. Likewise an item of food. Someone might find celery really delicious. I find it remarkably unpleasant for something that seems quite benign. But it just is. I've been really mindful with eating celery. I've done it so meticulously, equanimously, but it's still unpleasant. And mostly I avoid it when I can because it's no great thing to avoid celery. It's not a sort of great cause of suffering in the world. But there's no way around it. Almost all the other things that as a kid I found unpleasant in the way of food I now enjoy. But salary, No. We'll have these kinds of things ourselves. Things that we just find unpleasant. We don't need to figure out why that is. But we need to notice it. Likewise, pleasant and what is pleasurable? We don't choose that. It can change. It varies amongst individuals how they experience it and we can find it changes for ourselves. But What's key here is that it happens, and we do have a choice about how we respond to it, whether we react to it in that conditioned, habitual ways, or whether we find a different response. And with the reactivity and the patterning that we experience in regard to this, it's it's good to understand that this is deeply wired into our biological systems. And, you know, the very earliest life forms single cellular organisms floating in the soup of the great oceans basically their survival depended on being able to detect that whatever was in the the soup around them if it was something not nourishing they need to open up and relax the pores in the in the in the cell membrane and absorb as much of the stuff as they possibly could this is food this is life this is this is, you know, pigging out from a sort of single-celled point of view. And it needs to do it. And it equally needs to notice if there's something toxic in the soup it's swimming in that will actually harm it if it gets through. And so when some, it encounters something toxic, it tightens up, it contracts. It makes its membrane as dense as it possibly can. And it's all an automatic... Automatic reaction it doesn't think about it, you know. Not a great amount of neural material inside a single cell organism. But it just does it. It just does it. And so do we, made up of I think about is it ten or a hundred trillion cells in a human body, or something of that order. Um, It seemed like there's quite a lot of difference between those two numbers, but maybe not. It's just a lot of zeros. Um, And each one of these cells in this body is very closely related in its primary mechanisms to that single cellular organism I was speaking about. And so we have this movement towards pleasant, that when something feels like it may be nourishing, i.e. it's providing food, or when there's a moderate temperature, not too hot, not too cold, when there's a sense of space rather than being under pressure, when there's a reproductive opportunity. Our system engages the sense of, yes, let's get some of that. We hear a woodpecker and we think, oh, it's a different level, but it's like, oh, that's interesting. wonder where the woodpecker is. It's not a particularly pleasant sound, but the association of maybe I could see a woodpecker kind of attractive. You see, we're attracted to something. Well, I am anyway. Maybe for you it's not that. But notice what it is. Likewise, this movement away from the unpleasant, away from something that feels toxic or poisonous to us in some way, and that which is threatening to us in terms of um, extremes of temperature, too hot, too cold, or extremes of pressure which is either too much pressure, we get squashed, no pressure, as in outer space, we would just explode. Kind of messy. So best avoided. Because of that, because this is about our survival, this mechanism, this, this tonality, it has considerable power over our the way our attention moves. Our attention is moved towards or moves away from such experience. We actually find our attention drawn to the pleasant and ironically it seems to the unpleasant equally enthusiastically. If we're not aware of it, of course, we then easily become drawn into some reactivity. If we are aware of it, it's just, oh, look what's happening here. We can choose how we respond to it, as I said. To notice the movement towards liking and how, if we're not aware of that, easier the sense then of craving, I want more, or attachment, I must have or keep or get this. And aversion likewise, not liking, pulling away, I must get rid of, I must avoid this. We feel it solidifies into a position that becomes part of of the whole sense of self and its structure. So there's those those movements that happen unconsciously for most human beings, it seems, and occasionally consciously for meditators. And the more consciously it becomes, actually the more freedom we have. This is actually fundamental. The more we become aware of the hedonic tone in experience and see how it conditions us, the more we have the possibility to not be conditioned by it. And this is... One of the fundamental elements of freedom or the potential for freedom in that so getting to know it it's like so what is this it's kind of again it can sound a bit heady when we talk about it but actually if we feel into it what's it like so like, if you just imagine it or maybe you don't need to maybe you're in contact right now with something pleasurable or unpleasant and just notice what's that like before we start to think about it it's like it's kind of like it's it's quite sort of preconceptual actually it's something like you know if it's pleasant it's like ah you know when something feels good we just go ah and when it's not it's more like ah or mm. it's kind of and you know the the number of sort of vowels and consonants in his life if it's a short one it's just a little bit ah it's ah and we get the feeling oh that's a good one. We feel that in a way it's the it's a, like a relaxation that goes with it. It's like ah and there's a longer relaxation with the longer ah uh, with the deeper pleasure and with the unpleasant it's a uh, and it's a tightness or ah uh, you can feel it's a contraction and the more intense the the quality of unpleasant the deeper the contraction and perhaps the more sustained the contraction and it's physiological what happens we notice that so good to be present and to see if we can relax see if we can open allow ourselves to be aware, oh, look what's happening here. Now, if we don't register anything, and sometimes this is what we call neutral, though, again, I think the more precise translation is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Because it's not so much that we're in touch with a neutral Vedian quality; it's that we're not really getting a register of ne- of, of anything pleasant or unpleasant. And often that's to do with the way that we're not necessarily very sensitive because we're so overstimulated in day-to-day life. There's so much going on so much of the time. Our system handles that by actually switching down its sensitivity to cope with the intensity and the multiplicity, the volume and the speed at which experience is happening as we slow down as we become more sensitive more present our system starts to become more sensitive again it starts to be able to and something that initially might have not evoked any response we might not have been able to register clearly oh this was pleasant or this is unpleasant we actually start to become able to discern that but it doesn't mean we have to Somehow get there. Don't, don't feel, like, oh, I can't feel pleasant, unpleasant. I've got to work harder here. It's more like, oh, if it's neither, it's neither. That's where it is for now. That's fine. But to notice also that these things can sometimes be sort of mixed up together. A single moment may have quite opposing Vedana tonalities or hedonic tones within it. And a classic one would be some sort of the thought about what could be called a guilty pleasure, like fantasizing about a piece of chocolate cake. Sure, I shouldn't have said that, should I? You've all managed to not think about chocolate cake for several days, but there we are, the word's out. Um, chocolate cake. And there's this part of us that might get into a fantasy that's like, oh, yes, if that's not your thing, whatever your thing is would be similar but yes, chocolate cake. And then this other part, and that's pleasant, because the imagining of the cake, then there's the bit, oh, you shouldn't be being distracted, or oh, that's not good for you, that'll make you ill, Um, or if it's me, because I can't really eat wheat, it'll make me drowsy probably, Um, that sort of thing. And so there might be the pleasantness of the image, in this case, or if one should actually happen to have a piece of chocolate cake, of the taste And then there might be the unpleasantness of the association, oh, this isn't good for me. Or actually, this is a distraction and avoidance because it's part of that stock of yummy things I brought with me on retreat and I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to have done that. I'm not saying whether you should have or not, but we sometimes find things a little more complicated. And we notice it changes also sometimes. One of the interesting things is, is that you know, our mind, at a certain level, it's kind of pleasant to have it chattering away. It just keeps us company, you know, fills in all the boring blank spots, lets us know what's going on, gives us a sort of vague sense that we exist, all of which we can experience is kind of pleasant. Except when you're suddenly required to actually stay with it for an extended period of time, here we are on a meditation retreat. The mind that chatters, eventually, and sometimes it doesn't take too long at all, it becomes really quite tiring and troublesome and bothersome to have to listen to this da 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 da. And what was entertaining or com- sort of sort of pleasantly companionable noise starts to become annoying and frustrating because I want it to stop. Of course, some of that is because we've reacted to the experience, and our aversion to it, or our wish for it to change, has its own hedonic tone, its own veidanic quality to it. The aversion itself being unpleasant. In that case, and of course, sometimes the mind does actually go quiet. It can be really quite lovely at first. There's a sense of, ah, oh, relief. The mind has gone quiet. And then, perhaps just a few moments later, it's not unusual for some degree of unease or anxiety. It's like, oh, just a moment, I'm not sure about this. You know, because suddenly that subtle support for an idea of who I am is is no longer there. And we experience that as unpleasant. So again, maybe you can see from this how it can flicker, how it can move, how it can change. And uh, it's not that we need to notice or see or be present for every single moment that Vedana is arising. But as we start to include it consciously in our practice, it can really make a difference. And so something else um, that the the Buddhist teaching pointed out, which I I found it's very fascinating to contemplate, well, at least I find it fascinating. You might find it otherwise. So notice it might be not at all fascinating, and if that's the sense, see oh, is there a quality of that sounds like a pleasant thing or not? In this, it's it's there, with pretty much everything. Pleasant or pleasurable feeling, is pleasant when it's present. This isn't meant to be a rhyming, but it is pleasant when it's present. But it becomes painful when it changes. The reduction of a pleasant experience to become less pleasant, we experience it as unpleasant. Have you noticed that? Something's actually lovely, but then it becomes a bit less lovely, and that feels painful. It's still a pleasant thing, but not as pleasant as it was. And if we're not present with it, we experience that as unwanted, an unwanted low-level pleasure now. With the unpleasant experience, it's painful. We find it difficult, unwanted, when it's pleasant. But it becomes pleasurable when it changes. Have you noticed that? Something painful becomes less painful, and it's like, oh, that's nice. It's still painful. It's really interesting. It's still painful, but it's less painful, and that feels good. And if it goes away completely, well, that feels fantastic, but more instructive that even just a less painful experience we enjoy in comparison so it it shows how the quality the way which we experience this aspect this tonality of phenomena is very relative and fluid it's not a fixed thing and it's affected also by how we pay attention to it because when we pay attention uh, i have maybe finish the, uh, the sequence. With the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it's unpleasant if not known. That's the, the translation. I would say if not attended to, the neutral, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, what's the N-P-O-U? No, there's no acronym there, is there? Um, anyway, that, that which you know, um, the neutral. If it's not attended to, we experience it as unpleasant. This is interesting. What we call boring, it's basically, we're saying, this experience is neutral to me, it's neither pleasurable nor painful. And boring very quickly becomes something unpleasant. Nobody likes boredom or being bored. It's curious, isn't it, how that happens? Do you recognize that? The neutral, if we don't attend to it, becomes unpleasant. And the Buddha went on to say, and if we do attend to the neutral, it becomes pleasurable. Now that's interesting. If we pay attention to the breath, which seems pretty boring and neutral, and why would I want to do that? If we really start to pay attention to it, we start to discern something pleasurable in that experience. Not if we're trying to make it pleasurable, if we're grasping for pleasure, that won't work. But just actually the quality of contact. and I find this really useful to contemplate, to reflect upon, because what it's saying is that, or what I understand the implication of this to be, is that it's actually when we pay attention to something, the connecting with the experience has, irrespective of the experience, the connecting with it has something pleasurable in it. You can test this out for yourself. Sometimes we can even be with a difficult experience, but if we're really with it, it might be painful, but there's something also pleasurable about the way we are with it. The quality of presence with a painful experience can start to become sweet in a certain way. But with the neutral, when we pay attention to it, It in itself isn't offering us anything, but the fact of the connecting with it. We start to experience that, that connectedness, that present sensitivity as something pleasurable. And likewise, when we disconnect from the neutral, we disconnect from the neutral, we experience that as unpleasant, not because the experience is unpleasant, because we're experiencing disconnection. At a moment-to-moment level, we are not in relationship with what's here. And that in itself is unpleasant. That's the, those, that pleasant-unpleasant element is more to do with the unworldly, pleasurable, and unpleasant experiences, which is to do with the quality of the heart and mind in that moment. It's not about the worldly thing, the experience. It's about the quality of the heart and mind that is either connected or disconnected. And that connection or disconnection experienced as connection pleasurable, disconnection unpleasurable. And this is a real key to understanding how we can transform our experience. Because although we cannot control the experience and we cannot control whether it feels pleasant or unpleasant to us, we can cultivate and develop the capacity to connect with it. And, of course, that's what we're doing. And through that connecting with it, we actually start to notice something that is initially perhaps noticed more as just easeful, as a somehow a releasing from a certain distressing dimension, which is the being caught in reactivity, And the reactivity itself, excuse me, being unpleasant in that condition of the heart and mind way, unworldly, we could say. I'm sure there's a better word for it, but not quite sure what I'd say it would be. It's in a way it's more inwardly oriented. And so part of what we're doing here, part of why this whole framework is the way it is and how it makes sense is to allow ourselves to begin to work within those more subtle realms of experience we need to greatly reduce the amount of stimulation so the simplicity of a retreat environment like here at guy house is not to deprive us of all the lovely things we could be entertained and um, nourished and uplifted by but to allow our system to recalibrate, to rediscover its natural sensitivity and with that sensitivity begin to discern the deeper well-being that's possible through presence, through connection, through wakefulness, mindfulness, sati. Because as this starts to come, as we start to become more sensitive, as we're able to engage with our experience in this way, the subtle pleasurability of the condition of the heart and mind when it's present and connected starts to draw us. The subtle pleasurability of the simple ripple and flow of sensation in the body As it breathes or just the feeling of resting on the earth the solidity beneath us and the sense of sky or space around us these simple subtle we could say experiences start to become pleasurable we start to be drawn to them we start to incline towards them and without having to make an effort to concentrate or to be mindful, in that kind of forceful, trying to override my urge to be entertained, stimulated, and bathed in pleasurable things, which we have. Rather than having to override that, it actually starts to find its natural channel, its natural flow in the movement of the attention, of the heart and mind's capacity for connecting with, which is what attention is, and sustaining that attention, deepening Into the simple immediacy of experience. This is really the way in which samatha, the unification of the heart and mind, concentration, this is how it happens. Not through effort or willpower, but through this, actually opening this channel in which we start to enjoy our practice, in which we can actually start to enjoy even the difficult things that offer us the opportunity to be present, to connect to refine and deepen this remarkable human sensitivity that is one of the primary characteristics of, the, of our existence, and particularly of the, we could say, the organ of citta, of heart and mind. So it's really important to notice what we do less skillfully than that. That's using the Vedana tonality, skillfully to see where we get caught in reactivity, and just discerning the tone, the the hedonic tone, the pleasurable or unpleasurableness, gives us a lot of information about where the reactivity is coming from. But it's not just in that, it's in the way we pick it up, and the way we identify with it, the sense of self that arises with, I am feeling bad, or I am feeling good, and I want to feel good and I don't want to feel bad that sense of I or I'm making this good thing happen and all the projections and fantasies that arise around now my meditation is going well because it feels good and I'm a good meditator and some great vision of sort of uh, continuing one's practice for days and weeks and years and sitting in the cave with you know light pouring out the entrance you know and this fantasy arises on the identification with a moment of calm or pleasurable experience. And likewise, when it's unpleasant, the feeling that it, I'm doing it, or it's I, I'm, my meditation is bad, how often have we had that thought? My meditation's not working, or this was bad meditation, based on the fact that it wasn't pleasurable. We might think it's based on the idea that I had lots of distraction, but it's actually going to be based on whether we found it pleasant or unpleasant generally. If the distraction is pleasant, the thought, I shouldn't be distracted, is what becomes the unpleasant element of bad because there's a judgment in it. Rather than distraction, wow, look at that. It's powerful sometimes. It is. But we need to understand the mechanism and the sense of making it about me that goes on with that me as the cause, but also me as the subject of it, as if it's being done to me. It's just happening. Every single cell on this living earth has the same characteristic of responding in these very particular ways to whatever it's swimming in, so to speak. And every organism that's made up of hundreds and thousands and trillions of cells, likewise. This is life. that does this. But wakefulness introduces the possibility of recognizing the process. Seeing it's not me or mine. It's just what happens. And we are not bound by it or to it. If we can be awake in the moment of it happening. And understand the nature of the process that's taking place. So in practice, what's really helpful, not to make too much of a project out of it, but to be interested to notice if there are strong tones of either pleasant or unpleasant or neither at times in the day, just to notice it. And particularly when we find ourselves becoming distracted or lost, if that still happens to you occasionally, maybe it doesn't, that's fine, in which case it's, you know, doesn't apply, but if it happens, and probably for some of you, it still does now and then. Um, if you find your attention being drawn away from where your intention was seeking to place it, however that is, whether you're practicing in any of the realms one could be practicing, and the developing of calm samatha, in the establishment of, of 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 insight and wisdom, in the in the in the and the growing development of, of loving-kindness and the Brahma Viharas, exploration, all of that. Wherever we seeking to place our attention, noticing what makes it hard to sustain that attentiveness, that intentionality. So when the attention goes elsewhere, and if we're just establishing self in the retreat, maybe breath and body is your central object. That's If it was me there two, three days into the retreat, that's exactly what I would be doing. Um, its breath and body as the primary objects for attention and then when the attention goes to something else just to notice first of all where is it gone that's always a good thing to recognize and then is this pleasant or unpleasant where it's gone have I gone there because that looks good and I want some or because I'm a bit worried that that is going to be happening and I don't want it to just notice what's there And notice if there's a reaction to that. Like, is there grasping? Is there aversion? Is there disinterest? Have I given this experience no value? If I'm struggling to stay with the breath and it's like, oh, another breath. God, breathing. You know, know, why on earth should I be paying attention to this? It's like, am I suggesting this is of no value to me? This breath, just because it doesn't feel good right now? I mean, it's keeping us alive. That's pretty good. It doesn't always feel good. But if we attribute value based on the hedonic tone, we get caught in the wheel of samsara. And so much of the world is. That's the bottom line. If we attribute value according to hedonic tone, something that's out of our control and kind of random in a certain way, well, it's not entirely random, it's biological. If we start to see this and in this have the capacity to stay with, to release the reactivities, then as we're less bound in those reactions, which we you know we summarize in this tradition as, as greed or craving, as hatred and ill will, and as delusion, confusion, ignorance, if we stay present, these lose their power. And the the liberation, the the sure heart's release that these teachings point to, that they speak to, that they invite us to know for ourselves, the release of this heart from greed, from hatred, from delusion, this mind from craving, from clinging, from resistance, reactivity, (coughs) from blindness. This area of practice is a key, a key link and really worthy of understanding and engaging with. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. And uh Thank you for your practice here too. May our practice really serve for our own well being and liberation, and for the liberation of all, the well being of all.